Hey, hey, everybody, and welcome back to Happier Here, a podcast of Lauren Burger. I am your host, Lauren, and welcome to episode 19. We have our final guest of the season, Haley, and I'm so excited for y'all to meet her today. Haley is currently attending Vanderbilt University for her master's in public policy, specifically educational policy, which we will jump into a ton during this episode. She's a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated and the president of the NACWC Power Adult Club in Nashville, Tennessee. Haley is an amazing soul. She loves to travel to new places, eating delicious foods, hanging out with friends, and her life motto is explore, discover, and grow while constantly giving grace and trying your best. I am so excited for y'all to meet her today. We get into a ton of different topics about school, about policy, about education, about just her journey, and so I'm so excited for y'all to meet her. So without further ado, let's get on into it. Well, hello, Haley. Thank you so much for being here today. Of course. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Yay. Well, why don't we just start by you telling us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and we'll just go from there. Yeah. So my name is Haley B. Roy, and I am originally from Pittsburgh, but right now I am in Nashville, Tennessee. I moved here. Everyone's like, oh, how did you get from Pittsburgh to like Nashville? Doesn't make any sense. And so when I was in high school, my mom sent me on like a historical black college university tour. And so like a week and a half tour and like we traveled like to all these HBCUs like yeah. in Atlanta and like Ohio and we came to TSU right and my first choice was Spelman right because I was like oh no I have to go to Spelman like you know the whole like I was sold right the all girls school the best HBCU in the nation yeah. and then when I applied I didn't get accepted right and so I was like to my mom, I was like, well, I'm not going to college. Like, I didn't get accepted in the Spelman. So, you know, teenager here, like, oh, if I'm not my way, then I don't want it. Right. And my mom's like, well, if you stay home, you're going to have to pay bills and you're going to have to move out and get a job. And I was like, mm. oh, no, I don't want that. <laughs> so, and so I was really thinking back on the tour, like, okay, other than Spelman, what school did I really like that felt like home wasn't too big, but was like a nice size. And I was like, oh, Tennessee State, let me like, you know, run the block back. And mm-hmm. I did, I ended up applying and got accepted like literally like I think three days later. And I will say, that's how I say like, what's meant for you always be for you. And like when God closes one door, another one opens because when I went to Tennessee State University, everything that I accomplished, I would have never would have imagined. And so that's how I knew like that school was for me. That was part of my path. So I was there for about four and a half years. I majored in early childhood education. And right now I'm a pre-K teacher and um, this is my second year. It will be my last year teaching because I graduate in May from Vanderbilt in educational policy. And so once that teaching journey closes, it's time for me to hit into the political realm and advocate and you know lead and consult so that's kind of a little bit about me and my journey and just kind of where I am right now yeah that's amazing I have so many questions first how was it going to an HBCU like I feel like everyone has a very different experience and so what what was yours like yeah so I grew up in I went to a private school pre-K through thir- pre-K through 12. Okay. And so there's not a lot of black people when I went. Mm-hmm. And so I graduated with a class of 30 people and I may have wow. been maybe like six or seven black people. Okay. And so my parents were like really nervous for me going to HBCU because they were like, 
well, like, you know, this is me. I don't want it to be like a culture shock. I don't want you to be like, you know, I, they were just so nervous. And I kept telling myself, like, no, like, I am ready for this. Like, I did my research. I went on the tour. It felt right. Like, I am going. And I don't know. When I went to HBCU, I think I just felt for the first time, like, I was seen, that I was, like, heard. I made, you know, in high school, I didn't feel like I belonged. I always kept saying, like, I just feel like my purpose and my calling is higher than this. Like, I shouldn't be here. Like, mm-hmm. I deserve to be around, like, other things, but I didn't know what those things were. And then when I got to Tennessee State University, it all started to align. Like, I met, like, my great group of friends. I was meeting so many, like, Black and Brown people of different ethnicities. Mm-hmm. And, like, I was so learning so much about my culture that going to, like, a Christian school you don't really learn about like black and brown people like of course you have like black history month but that's like the same people that we learn about when we're like in right. middle and elementary right. school right. whereas like this year i was learning about like well i'm a rudolph and like all these other important figures that i'd never heard before i know it sounds bad right. but i never heard it before because i was such in a shell yeah. and I would say between like just the education, the research opportunities, of course, you got your sororities and your fraternities Mm -hmm. and just like the overall experience. Now that I'm post-grad life, I really do miss it. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a hard transition from HBCU to PWI because there's not a lot of black people. The culture is not the same. You're like kind of isolated. Like it's not like very welcoming of an environment. Yeah. Whereas like TSU felt like home. So mm-hmm. I love my HBCU. Of course, like you always have like your HBCU issues, but like, I feel like everything you do there, it like triumphs that, like, because yeah. the experience, you're not going to get that anywhere else. Absolutely. And yeah, like you just said, it must have been such a huge transition to be surrounded by people who look like you, who align with you, who, and even just like look like you, we may not even have the same opinions, but just to be around people that like you feel like are your people. And then to go back into a PWI, like I can't even imagine like that experience. And are you, are you online or are you on campus or how is that? Okay. No, I'm in person. So you know, Vanderbilt is a very competitive school. Yeah. Um, my program is the second in the nation, like, of best schools for educational policy. Wow. And my first semester, I wanted to quit. Because <laughs> Van- Vanderbilt's an Ivy League, right? I call it the Ivy League of the South. Okay. Yeah, okay. The South. I always call it the Ivy League of the South. I wanted to quit. <sighs> it was really hard adjusting I felt like I didn't have like a community I feel I felt like it was just one of those things you know we're preaching about diversity and advocacy and yada 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 but at some point they're also a part of the problem because there's not a lot of diversity in like the curriculum and like the teachers and the staff and I mean like of course like when you think about like how these schools were founded like it never those places and spaces were never meant for black and brown people. So mm-hmm. now that we're living in an era where like we're breaking barriers and like lifting up limitations, like to see that change obviously takes time. Mm-hmm. But my cohort of 37 was also the first di- most diverse group they've had in a really long time. And while that is amazing and it's nice, the um, structure institutional wise, like their curriculum and instructional design and implementation still has a lot of work to do. So it's like, we're like, they're like lagging, right? They're like moving forward, but lagging at the same time within the resources in which they have the capacity to use. Absolutely. And so 
Yeah, I end up meeting Danielle. She's like amazing. She's like this lady that's in the career development center. Yeah. And I always say, if it was not for her, I really felt like I probably would have quit. Like it was just that bad. Like I was just like, this is first of all, the workload was insane. I was yeah. just like, well, I still work full point, like full time. Yeah. And then it was just hard to find my niche. Mm-hmm. Like I was and that's when I felt like imposter syndrome really kicked yes. in. And that's when I was like, do I deserve to be here? Like, I'm, am I just here, like, to fit, like, the status quo because I'm a Black woman? Like, yep. like I was really just starting to, like, doubt myself that I deserve to be there. Yeah. And so that felt like that played, like, a very major part in why I also felt out of touch. The yeah. culture was different. And then because I didn't fit in, it was more so, like, now do I deserve to be here? Right. And right. so... Yeah, that was a battle within itself. But like after that first semester, mm-hmm. yeah, I got it together because I was like, no, I deserve to be here. Yeah. Like, you know, I am walking in this space and place for a reason. Absolutely. And so, yeah, that transition was tough. And I they bet. don't talk about that. They don't prepare you for that. Yeah. And so then when you go into post-grad life, whether you go into grad school or not, mm-hmm. they don't tell you how hard it is to make friends. They mm-hmm. don't tell you how it's very easy to get complacent. Yep. like doing the same thing over and over again and yep. I'm like wow I see how people don't do anything it's easy to go to work come home and do nothing yep. it's very easy and if I didn't have school I don't know what I'd be doing I know. <laughs> so, yeah it, it was just a lot it was it was a huge transition yeah. yeah absolutely and like yeah even the transition of like you just said going into post-grad life it's it's weird like it's very weird of I remember I took my summer off and even just those couple months of like what do I do I don't have homework I don't have stuff to do um, all my friends are like going back home. Like, I don't, I don't know where my place is. And then for you, you left a group full of black people into a white space. And it's like, where, where the hell am I? What am I supposed to be doing? What is going on? Like, it's just so like, yeah, it's just like mind boggling to have to like deal with all of that. And then, like you said, like that imposter syndrome is so real. I know I've, I felt that too, being like, was I like the diversity quota that y'all just needed? Do I really belong here? But like you said, like we are all in whatever place we are for a purpose, a reason, and we all deserve to be here. And it's, and I think it's, I think it's harder as black women too to be in these spaces and not feel like we are, we are needed and deserve to be there. So how, how has that experience been for you? Are you one of like the only black women in your program or? No, actually there is me. There's about six, six or seven. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's unheard of. That's very six to seven. And I'm on the younger spectrum. Yeah, because I came straight out of undergrad. So a lot yep. of them are older than me with like have more experience where I yep. like came out and like, you know, I don't have any experience. I'm just going right in. Like, right, oh, right, right. Well, all experience I got is from my internships and what I learned from TSU. And here I am. Right, right. And um, that definitely does play a part in it too. But I will say the community of Black women that I have met, we're all like really close, especially like the four youngest ones and like the ones that are older, more so like that big sister relationship or, you know, that advice. And, you know, we're all still like very good friends, but I will say I found my like close friends that in my cohort and I like love them so much. Literally we have a group chat and it's called Renaissance, like shout out to Beyonce because it really had me think of like new beginnings, like new friendship, like a new era with them because we're all in policy and like, when you think of policy, 
you know that people be fighting for policy, but there's not like a lot of black people in yeah. policy when you're thinking about like on a state or federal level, right. or even sometimes our for-profit or non-profits or consultant works, you yep. rarely find like a lot of like black women in that space. Right. So being able to be in a program with them was like, oh, hey, we're in this together. Like we all have the same concerns. We're going through the same yeah. thing. And so it definitely is like a sense of community. And if I didn't have them, I don't know kind of like where, I don't really know how that stability would look for me right now. <laughs> Absolutely. So. Yeah, you need to find your people. Like, and like you said, like that sisterhood too. And I know we we got the pleasure of meeting through like NACWC. Mm-hmm. And I know you, you pledged when you were at TSU, right? Yeah, Alpha Kappa Alpha. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have an AKA too. How has, how has sisterhood been for you? How is, do you think that's been a big um you know, factor in like your, your success and your growth at TSU, at Vanderbilt, where you're at now, like, do you feel like that has been a pretty big role in your life? Yeah. I tell everyone all the time, people who say they don't need friends are lying. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You need friends that are going to ground you. Those times when I was going through my imposter syndrome, my line sisters, my like club sisters, like my friends I met at Vandy were like really like just there for me and I'm the type of person like I talk to a lot of people you know because just what I do but my circle is small and all my friends play a specific role in my life and I always say it's okay to have friends that serve a different purpose in your life and they're not always going to serve the same thing so my line sisters and my friends who were able like to do post-grad and go into like grad school they understood exactly what that felt like they're like listen we're here for you we know my other friends you know they were more supportive in like the venting side or maybe just giving me ideas or keeping me grounded in that foundation and I will say that I really just I feel like you know you have a good sisterhood when you just feel the love all the time regardless if you talk all the time or not like they show up for you the best way they know how you're yeah. gracious towards them and that you guys just have an understanding and that like, Hey, regardless if I'm here or not, I support you. I love you. Let me know what I can do for you. If I have the mental capacity to do so, because we all go through things. So yeah. I definitely would say my sisterhood has played a huge impact in keeping me grounded, keeping me going, yeah. sticking to my boundaries and just like pushing forward. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Are you an only child or do you have siblings? No, I'm the oldest. Okay, okay. Like that golden child syndrome, you know, like you're like that ticket child. I always tell people, I'm like, that is real, right? Because like that expectation and that like perfectionism and that, you know, I have to do this. I have to be this. That definitely also plays a huge part in like how you develop and how you manage things and how you like navigate your life so yeah I'm the oldest and then I have a sister who's 19 and then my brother's 13 okay okay so you grew you grew up with a sister but I feel like yeah I mean our chosen family and those people that we get to like seek out I mean I love my family to death I, I would not be here without them but it's, it's nothing like being able to choose your friends your sisters and those who like lift you up it's a different it's definitely a different kind of love but yeah, man, being the oldest. Yeah, you got a lot of pressure on you from all sides. Yeah, and my mom's like, yeah, no, I treated you guys all the same. And I'm like, <laughs> did you really? Because I'm stressed. 
<laughs> trying to figure out how to break this perfectionism, right. how to like live my life on my terms, my expectations without people pleasing. That's like a really big thing I feel like comes with like older kids, perfectionism, people pleasing. That people pleasing one is hard to break. And mm-hmm. that's when your boundaries like have to start coming in. So, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> boundaries is a big thing. I Yeah, I hear you. It's, it's hard, especially when you're juggling school, work, friends, family. It's yeah, it's definitely something you have to put in place to make sure your mental is okay. Because if not, you will burn yourself out in a hot right. minute. <laughs> um, so I heard you you saying like uh, you said something about following not everybody else's expectations, but doing like what you wanted to do, what your purpose was, what your reason was, and you're getting into like a very specific field. Mm-hmm. what really sparked your interest for that and like also tell me a little bit more about your degree because I don't think I even really know what it entails yeah so it sparked my interest I would say I grew up very privileged and yeah. um not that I was always felt like I was ashamed for growing up privileged yeah. but you can always have those comments like oh you're an oreo you know mm-hmm. you're a black white girl or mm-hmm. you talk too proper or you're not black you don't like you know yeah name it like that stereotypical if you grew up in the suburbs and you're privileged that type of language and so I feel like I always struggled with like well no like I am black and I still was around black culture black people like all that good stuff I just had I feel like financially a better pathway that was paid for me by my parents Mm -hmm. which allowed me to have more exposure and I think I got into education because I mean I always work with kids right but it took me really to get to TSU to really see like the inequities in education right Mm -hmm. because I was humbly granted the opportunity to attend great schools to attend private schools and you know I was able to read and write and talk and you know be able to do these things but when I got to TSU and I was realizing there were people in the same class as me that wasn't able to read Mm -hmm. weren't able to write or weren't able to do like in my mind the like fundamental like fundamental like principles like you need for education it really made me like think back like wow like there's like some inequities going on Mm -hmm. and it like because like when you see people like that struggling it it does make you feel bad right Right. but it makes you also feel like why like why why is this happening I mean since I'm like a a curious person you know they are say curiosity kills the cat but since I'm like so curious I like really started taking an interest into like why these inequities like were starting to happen and kind of like made me, I guess, like interested in that pipeline, right? Because for the fact they're so far behind now, they were nine times out of 10 were noticed somewhere through the pipeline, but they were still pushed forward. And so like, why? Like, and so that's kind of what really started my, my interest when I was an undergrad um my I worked with the NAACP and I kind of was like I was in DC I lived in Noma and I was focused on that time HBCUs uh, funding inequities and while I was focused on funding then equities still poured over into academics right Mm -hmm. and kind of like how you know if we have students who are below how are we combating that with like resources to push them ahead so all that kind of ties in um and then I was interning with SCORE which is the state collaborative the Tennessee state collaborative and like reforming education so that's when I started getting into like early investment because I truly do believe if you the earlier you invest in a child and you can catch the 
disadvantages of lacking of resources and knowledge and retainment, Absolutely. then like that's easier to kind of close that like pipeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, like most states, you know, they always say, well, you know, you only can tell if they're like far behind once you get in third grade and you test them and yada, yada. Mm-hmm. that is a false narrative because yeah. as a pre-K teacher, I can already see my kids who are going to be really far behind mm-hmm. because in pre-K, you don't agree on testing them mm-hmm. or, you know, those extra resources that could help them. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's a false narrative. So I did a lot of like early and early, like in child care investment and like mm-hmm. pre-K investment was doing like a lot of research on that. And then with TSU, I got the opportunity to partner with NASA and we were like implementing like STEM based resources in communities, like elementary communities and kind of seeing like the inequities within that. Right. So we're giving yeah. kids who have never had this opportunities, all these resources. And does that spark their interest in, um, you know, their interest in STEM and does it somehow close that achievement? Right. Does STEM help close the achievement gap? Does it make more kids pro more kids to be successful academically so yeah with all these different opportunities right it all kind of forms into this big picture so i'm getting like the classroom experience the policy experience it made more sense to go into educational policy and so kind of just is that covers a realm of things i can do state federal policy i can do consultant work on behalf of a school or like an organization um i can do research you know you know just do the research part the data collection there's so many things i can do and people are like i never heard educational policy i'm like yeah because when you think of education they only teach you that you can just be a teacher right they're always no money in education or you know you just have to be a teacher and that's it no, there's a realm of things in education because teaching's like the the implementators, right? But you yep. have the people who are like making it and giving their opinions. And you have people that's funding it. There's so many different layers that we don't think of, which yeah. is why educational policy kind of brings that together because now I can kind of scope out kind of where I want to start my yeah. advocacy work and like kind of where I want to lean towards of like yeah. doing. So yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's amazing yeah it's a <laughs> lot that's so many different layers and I'm even just thinking like I've had a couple of people on the podcast that have worked in the schools or worked with in some capacity with kids and I'm just thinking too about how the pandemic has impacted like learning and like you said like you you can tell in pre-k like the kids that are going to struggle when they get into you know the actual classroom setting in the k through five or k through 12 whatever it is like you can tell that and have you seen I know you've been at the pre-k for what two years almost have you have you seen that like the pandemic impacting a lot of the kids functioning their interactions with each other learning like what what have you noticed as a pre-k teacher yeah so when I first came in like honest I was like oh my goodness like they were like low lower than what I've experienced before And, you know, I've, like, older women that work with me, they're like, yeah, they're COVID babies. You know, they've never been exposed. Like, yeah, yeah, I got to, got to, And I'm like, yeah, that's true. But when you're thinking about it in, like, a logical sense, you have to also think about these are kids who, because of COVID, and that's pre-K, older kids, like, we all suffered from COVID. And you're really thinking about, there was not adequate resources given to students to fully be able to take advantage of that academic success. Yeah. So like we're talking about, we didn't switch to virtual 
a lot of people, a lot of kids were at home by themselves. Their parents still have to work. Right. Um, they weren't able to dedicate the amount of hours or time. A lot of them didn't have resources or packages. Like they were literally learning from a computer screen. Right. Um, there weren't enough access to like tutors or like people. Some people didn't have hotspots. Some people didn't have Wi-Fi. Right. Like, there was just so many basic necessities that a lot of like marginalized and like black and brown people or ethnicities people of color did not have Absolutely. and so when you're thinking about like on elementary and middle school yeah like we cannot be upset that these test scores are like low or they're not retaining because we did not like properly prepare them yeah. for online learning so now you fast forward to pre-k they're like two or three two or three when yeah. the one two three when the pandemic hit yeah. So, like, though they were at home, that wasn't promised that their parents were actually, like, sitting down with them and doing stuff because everybody was worried about a job. Everybody was worried about finances. People, a lot of things were shifting in dynamics. So now that me and, like, my other fellow pre-K teachers have them, we're seeing this gap and, like, we're like, oh, well, how do we fix it? Because it's like, we can't teach what they should have been learning in the first three years of their life yeah. in the span of like eight months. Eight months That's right. impossible. And it's just like the kids who are high, they're high. The kids who are low, they're low. Yeah. And I will, but I will say from August to now, I have seen growth okay. within my little kids, even if it's a small amount. Growth yeah. is growth because at some point they came in and did not know a lot of things. Right. So yeah, like you are seeing those gaps and those inequities within like pre-K. That's why I always say, I feel like third grade is too late to test. Yeah, I feel like third grade is way too late because you can see it in pre-K. And I'm not saying that like you need to test every kid, right? Because then you have that issue where a lot of black and brown students are tested for special education mm -hmm. but don't need special education like no we don't need that what right. we need is this extra support for academic students who may need that one-on-one -on -one tutoring Absolutely. and that falls into like yeah a lot of kids decide to act out because they do have a hard time understanding the material not because they don't want to learn it's not because they don't know anything they may just learn different but we're right. still stuck on like you know we preach like you know kids should have autonomy and this gentle I call it the teacher the gentle like parent teaching I always yeah, say you know yeah. gentle parenting but they try mm -hmm. to throw it in for like teachers too right. and it's just like yes that's important but it's not really aligning because you're still not giving teachers the autonomy right. to differentiate properly what kids need yeah and so that also falls into like school choice and yada yada so it's like when I tell you it's like this like big concoction of yeah. things that fall into this one umbrella it's all like a chain of command and if you don't follow one step it literally messes everything up. falls apart yes yeah mm -hmm. it's crazy oh my goodness there's just so many so many layers and you think it would just be a simple fix of like okay make sure kids are in school and that's it like no it's so many other avenues and and just things that come into play I I, I wonder as somebody who's almost finished with their program and has been in you know, advocating spaces and been like fighting for this. What do you think is like the one thing that like people need to know or need to be like talking about or starting conversations about for everyone to have like an equitable school experience? That is such a hard question <laughs> because like we have so many kids and families starting at different paces and right. they need 
different things. And I think it's definitely starts with like the people who are creating. And Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, I have a friend and she's in policy and she's sometimes like, I have a lot of friends in policy and she's like, sometimes people just don't know what they're doing. <laughs> like no one knows what they're doing. They're just like creating laws yeah. and, you know, creating things. And I bring you to the point of when you're creating these spaces and places for people to create laws towards education, it's really important that we're doing it from a lens and a framework that includes everybody, right? Because if you're a white man making laws for education, nine times out of 10, you're looking at it from a privileged lens than more so from a disadvantaged lens. And we're not taking into account community leaders. We're not taking into account like different stakeholders, like parents, community leaders, teachers, like all these other people who play like a enormous role in implementing education and I feel like also too that's like a really big downfall like parents and teachers and friends need to start like attending like school town hall meetings I know they're not like specifically called town hall meetings but you know when schools come together like their school board meetings and things like that parents and community leaders definitely need to go they need to see these people that are their district member or chair who are they right like who are these people? What are they making laws for on your kids, right? Because the more people that attend, the more your voice can be heard and the more like you can actually have an impact, right? Where always mm-hmm. oh, so they, they're like, yes, vote, vote for the president. Yeah, that's cool. But listen, y'all need to be voting in y'all communities right. with, with these school districts and these school boards mm-hmm. because they're affecting your kids, whether you realize it or not. Yep. And I think like proper knowledge also needs to be given to parents and accessibility and where they can get this knowledge. I say everyone deserves to have a amazing education, right? And my my biggest question I always propose, if if public schools are so good, why do we give people the choice to go to other schools? Why do we give people vouchers? Why do we give the lottery system, right? Because if public education is good, Everybody should be okay with their kids attending public school. Right, right. But the fact that we're giving people school choice to like all their alternatives to public yeah. schools and we're investing a lot of money in there, that's yeah. not adding up because that means that, you know, public schools are only providing the basic necessities mm-hmm. to succeed and not a holistic approach for child development. Yeah. So that's like my two little cents. People got to start questioning yes. present and, you know, really push yourself and like it's hard right because people are working two three four five jobs it's hard out there money's tight you have a lot of external factors Mm -hmm. but I will say as much as we're on our phones and we have accessibility to google and tiktok and instagram because everyone's always in someone else's business or doing x y and z (laughs) let's take the time to actually figure out like what is going on in our communities and kind of just how we can get involved and I think that's where that partnership and collaboration needs to take work mm-hmm. from like school board leaders, local districts, state and like people with the communities and making sure that instead of just like telling them that we're actually mm-hmm. providing options for them to be involved. Cause it's different yeah. to have a seat at the table, but it's also very different to have a voice. Yeah. And so I think that's what people need to realize. Yes. Oh, I love that. We all may have a seat at the table, but if people ain't able to speak up and share their, their truths and their stories, nothing is going to change. Yeah. yeah I oh. say that the same. 
That's so powerful. I can just like, I can tell your passion and I'm so just like thankful that we have your voice and your, your knowledge and all of this. Like, like you said, there's so many people that don't even know educational policy is a thing. And I am one of them. I'm learning so much right now. Um, But yeah, it's amazing. And I'm just, I'm so proud of you and all the work that you're doing. You're going to be incredible. And, and I would love to know, like in, in 10 years, 15 years, You've been in the field for a while. You've had your degree. You've been working. Where would you love to see yourself? Where would you love to be, be doing? What What would be like your dream in like 10, 15 years? Well, that's such a hard question. It's like such a hard I'm, question. I'm like, I feel like I'm all over the place right now with what I like to do. Yeah. <laughs> and so I always say in the next 10 to 15 years in my career, what, I'm 24. So mm-hmm. I'll be, oh, geez, I'll almost be 50. <laughs> <laughs> I'll almost be 50. Um, yeah, I'll be close to 50. I'm like, I don't know if I did that math right, but I'll be, I'll be, a, I'll be a seasoned woman by then. Right. Um, I think that I will be, I've pictured myself more so like going around and speaking to people mm-hmm. about equity and how as a policymaker and teamwork, how we can make these transitions in education almost like I always call it someone told me it's like education media right you know how you have those like motivational speakers and they go around and they talk and do x y and z yeah think about that but on the flip side more so like policy like something in that aspect something in that aspect me traveling and just talking to people and getting them the information the stuff they need on top of I love K through 12, but at some point I do want to curve off into higher education. Mm-hmm. And I always said, like, I think my end goal out of all of this, once I've done the policy, once I've been in different sectors, mm-hmm. is to be like an HBCU president. And so that's something I'm really like fixated on as my like end goal in about maybe 20 yeah. to 30 years. Yeah. Uh, but everything in between that is definitely policy making, funding, grants, like I want to like experience every part of the education like chain in order to be like a holistic, like a policy guru of education almost. And so it's kind of like my plan. It's not like planned out yet, but I know that God is going to use me as a vessel. I'm always praying. Like I'm like, whatever you do, you know, I don't care about the money. Like, of course, I don't want to be like struggling or finding lacking. But I was also always taught, like, when you're good at something, the money will follow. If this is your passion, God will make sure that you're okay, that you're straight. And so I think as I, like, go through all of this, the only thing I keep praying about is just use me as a vessel and allow me to, you know, make you proud. Allow me to, you know, be that light that you want me to be. And so, like I always say, I never know what I'm going to end up doing because I could say one thing and then God's like, we're turning here. We're going to give you this direction. That's what I want you to do. And you're adjusting. And so when people ask me what I'm doing, I'm just like, I know my end goals, HBCU president. I know in between there, I want to do a lot of educational advocacy, leadership, consulting, design and stuff like that. I can't tell you where, I can't tell you how, but just know somewhere I'll be like traveling along those lines. I love that. And just being grounded in, like you said, your faith and knowing that God is going to point you in whatever direction he has planned and it's going to do good work and it's going to have, I don't know, it's going to impact so many lives. And I'm, I'm so excited to just keep following your journey. Thank you. No, thank you. Is there anything you would like to leave people with? Any words of wisdom? I feel like you've dropped so many bombs already, but like anything else, if you could tell anybody one thing, what would it be? 
I will say that regardless of how old you are, continue to discover, grow, and explore. Things are constantly changing. You're constantly changing. The world is constantly changing. So don't be afraid to strip away those old frameworks and narratives and perceptions and really to just create new ones, regardless of what field you're in, education, business, like because we're adapting and we're really just changing and evolving in the world constantly is. So if I can say anything, it's just continue to grow, discover, and explore. Never put a limit on yourself and to just try your best each and every, each and every day. Yeah. That's amazing. You're so great. I'm I'm so thankful for you. And I'm so excited for everyone to just hear all of this. And it, it's incredible. We need people like you that are just pouring into the younger generation and making a more equitable world one step at a time. I know it's hard work. I know it's probably tiring, but I'm, I'm proud of you. Very, very proud of you. Thank you. No, thank you for having me. I was so excited. And now that it's here, I'm like, oh, it's so great. Yes. I'm so excited to share your story. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll have to have you back in like 10 years to see how Absolutely. you do the world. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Haley.